Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. I believe that each guest has important information and stories to make public. This is the Keep Talking podcast. To support it, please take a second and subscribe to the show. It helps to make this content possible. The following is a conversation with Warren Farrell. Warren Farrell is a political scientist, a former board member of the National Organization for Women, and the author of many books, including The Boy Crisis, the focus of this conversation. During our conversation, Warren talks about his time at NOW, second wave and modern feminism, the gender pay gap, what he learned when he stopped lecturing at and started listening to men, and the historic and current role of men in society. He also talks about the reasons for the decline in male sperm count over the last two generations, the role of men in war, why fathers are so important and what children learn from them, and contemporary male and female college graduation rates. Warren notes during the interview that perhaps the most important line in his book is, quote, the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside, end quote. He is one of the world's experts on this topic and is at his best during this interview. It was a privilege to host it. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Warren Farrell. Warren Farrell, I have looked forward to this for so long. Um, it's a real honor for me to do this and to get some of your time. Thank you so much for coming to the show. It's wonderful to meet you. I'm looking forward to talking with you and talking off camera has made me feel very um, good about connecting. Likewise. Thanks, man. I wanted to start with the way that you start the boy crisis. And I thought I might just read the opening line from the book. And maybe we can start there and go into the history of how this book came about in your own life. But I'm going to quote the beginning of the book. And it starts with a quote from, I believe you pronounce his name, Dave, David Cunliffe, the New Zealand leader of the Labor Party from 2014. This is the quote, and I'm quoting you, quote, I am sorry for being a man. We're going to cover a lot of topics today, but I think the state of men and the recent history of men is probably going to be one of the primary focuses. Maybe we can just start with that quote and begin with a little bit of background about what led you with such an interesting history with your advocacy, your you know, male feminism for so many years, your work for now. Um, I'd love to give you an opportunity to speak to how the book came about, how you make sense of that in your mind at this point. Well, as you sort of um, mentioned, um, my background was um, as a male feminist. I was on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City while I was um, doing my doctoral work at NYU and deeply involved in this book all around the world as I suppose the leading male feminist, if you will, um, of the late um, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And um, and then and was very devoted and still am a devoted uh, feminist, if feminism doesn't imply a honing victimhood as a fine art, um, which oftentimes, unfortunately, it does. Um, or alternatively, um, saying that you know women are oppressed and men are the oppressors, um, which is about as far from the truth as as can be, um, and and uh, and creates a misunderstanding about everything that masculinity and femininity were about. Um, and so, um, but. For those feminists who really you know, feel on this uh, feel that they're part of a gender liberation movement in which both sexes um, are beginning to be able to shed the rigid roles of the past 
um, and liberate themselves to more um, uh, flexible roles for the future. Um, if that's the definition of feminism that you incorporate, then then I'm 100% uh, on board with that. Um, I love the part of feminism that created um, more opportunities for women. I remember being in high school and um, having five or six really bright women um, in the class, and you know they were all advised. Um, I'm 80 years old now, so you know the, in, the, in those days they were advised that they you know they could be you know wonderful teachers, wonderful nurses. Um, and you know that type of thing, but they weren't offered much more uh, professionally than that. And today, um, you know, women, we say, you know, you go, girl, and you know, and the, the you know, the world is your oyster, and you can be whoever you want to be. And I think that's exactly the message that should be there uh, for women. Um, but the message that um, you know, men uh, earn more money, uh, therefore they um, are the oppressors. Um, and you are the oppressed. Um, that misunderstands the fact that men did earn more money than women did. Men in general did, but men mostly did because when they were, when they became fathers and then as fathers, they gave up the things that they wanted to do, their passions. They knew that, you know, being a musician, you probably couldn't earn enough to support a wife and children and, you know, a new home and, uh, in the right neighborhood with the right school. Um, so they gave up being that musician, that artist, that writer, uh, or that elementary school teacher because that wasn't paying enough. And so they needed to become a principal or a, uh, and they hated administration, but they didn't care because that was what they needed to do to make the, give their children options that they didn't have and to turn that that willingness to earn money that somebody else spends while they die sooner um, into male privilege. Uh, just missed the understanding of what um, the internalized role of a male who was a father um, was about. Yeah. You know, I've read a decent amount about your story and your time at now. And, I, you know, I've heard you say this in other interviews that you, know, you were one of the most prolific and well-known advocates and representatives of the now organization for a number of years. And I, I think maybe it might be helpful to give a little bit of context to what would lead you to write a book about these subjects. Because as I understand that story, there were there was a schism there. There was a disagreement eventually with the leadership of now. And I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to make sense of that as well, because it seemed to me just in researching you that that was an important moment in your trajectory and becoming who you are now and what, what you've worked on for so many years. Yes, I, I think one, you know, uh, no one example of anything can always represent the the complexity of these things. Um, but one example was um, I was, uh, this was the early 70s. And um, I was on the, uh, from 1970 to 1974, I was on the board of directors of now. And, um, and it was toward the end, my former wife was a White House fellow and we, we moved from New York City to Washington. But just about as before we were doing that move, I mentioned that I was noted to the board uh, of now in New York City uh, that um, I was, um, I had done been doing some research on the uh, the outcome of divorces that had been happening in much greater numbers in the early 70s uh, than they had happened previously, and that the um, and that some of the early findings were that uh, the children that did not have um, that that children of divorce um, and children of single mothers that they were oftentimes not doing as well. Um, 
as um, especially the boys, um, as they um, otherwise might be expected to do given their socioeconomic uh, demographics. And so um, the the group sort of went silent on me. And um, I said, well, what's happening here? And they basically said, well, what's happening here, Warren? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're, you're, um, you know, you, A, um, you're, you know, the world's leading male feminist. And you're talking about, don't you know that feminists want to be able to have after divorce uh, the say over whether the mother uh, will be fully involved with the children. She knows the children usually better than the father. And so she knows what's best for the children. And they tr- um, we want to trust the fem- you know our feminist constituency that they have the best interests of the children in mind. And if they want to get married uh, to somebody new and leave their uh, a mistake they feel they've made behind and move out of state or move someplace else, uh, they should have the freedom to do that. And if we don't, uh, if we say that the children need to be equally involved with the father and the mother, which is what the initial research was showing, um, that um, that that will really undermine our ability to get um, uh, feminists to sign up to be part of um, now. And um, and I said, well, you know, I, I am 100% in support um, of the right of women to make decisions that, that they want to make, to have children, um, to have careers, to have some combination of both. Um, but once you decide to have a child, then the only question, what, once you exercise that right to have a child, then the only question that you ask after that is what's best for the children. Hmm. And, um, and if, if what's best for the children is having both mother and father about equally involved in their life, and living close enough to each other so that they can see both parents, you know, often, uh, then it would seem to me that we would all be in favor of that. And uh, again, there was sort of a silence. And um, and they say, well, the response was, well, you know, well, Warren, if we lose, remember, we have more fish to fry than just um, a shared, equal shared custody uh, among, you know, we have a dozen issues. And if we lose, you know, if we, if we lose women based on this issue, we'll lose them for all the other issues, equal pay, et cetera, et cetera. And so I said, I, I do understand that. And I also feel that it's, it's important to sort of not just be political, but, you know, to do what's right for the next generation. And so the response, you know, the temporary conclusion was, well, you know, Warren, you've said that you, um, uh, that this research is initial and, and early on. And so why don't you keep doing the research? But the, you know, the message was really clear. If you, you know, that, that 90% of my speaking engagements were coming from, you know, some, some feminist who referred me or, you know, previous speaking where there was a referral. And uh, the, um, and so I, I got the message that, you know, should I decide to, be also speaking up for boys and men and uh, the future of the family, uh, that this would not, you know, this would lead to a significant cutoff of engagements. And I'd already seen some of this when I, I had started, now had asked me to start men's groups um, to get the men in the consciousness raising groups that were held once per month. Uh, now now uh, groups around the country held consciousness raising groups or awareness groups about feminism uh, for um, the their membership. And oftentimes men and women in the groups together, the women wouldn't feel as comfortable and safe and as open uh, with men around as they wa- as they wanted to feel. And I really understood that and agree with that. And so they they um, and they, so they were thinking about kicking men out of now completely. Mm-hmm. And so they came to a um, 
a compromise. And the compromise was um, if, you know, Warren Farrell will do, uh, will conduct men's groups um, and take the men away for, out of the hair of women, if you will, mm-hmm. um, that and, and those men's groups are OK or they're, you know, the guys are OK with that, uh, then we'll let men be in now. Uh, well, that started me on two uh, avenues. One was for that was the beginning of forming some 300 men's groups and some 250 women's groups. Every place I I, I went, um, I circulated pads. People signed up for men's or women's groups, and then I trained them to 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 learn how to run those groups. So that was the good news. Uh, the bad news was that this um, uh, that this process. Um, after I stopped lecture, learned to stop lecturing men and, 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 about, you know, about, um, the right feminist ideology to adopt and, uh, or adapt. And, um, and I listened to them rather than talked to, rather than lecture to them. I started hearing the, the, you know, the, the challenges that men went through, the pain that they experienced, the, you know, the, what it felt like doing a job that they hated to do every day because they felt that they could earn more money doing that than they could doing a job that they loved to do. And they, you know, the forfeiting of passion, even as women were talking about liberation being to seek their passion, the men were sort of, you know, um, they had repressed and never spoken to other men about the degree to which they uh, they limited they had lost their passion to in order to earn money, and so as I got I got to see that and see that even in myself, mm. um, I was um, I then um, I, I then started to express and integrate some of those things into my presentations. And as I did that, um, I could see that my standing ovations were becoming less enthusiastic and I was getting fewer referrals uh, to new speaking engagements. And so I, um, I saw the handwriting on the wall and, you know, and the, 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 the choice to, to be involved with both boys and men's issues and say, uh, you know, we're all in the same family boat when only one sex wins, both sexes lose. And take that type of approach, a gender liberation approach, if you will. Um, that certainly has cost me somewhere between ten and twenty million dollars over the cost of my career, based on, you know, the best calculations I could do. Yeah. To go to the point where the data you were seeing was flying in the face of, you know, you just use this word ideology, meaning that what's best for the children in your estimation on average in general is to have roughly equal parenting, even in divorces. What does that mean exactly? What, what kind of data statistics were you uncovering or becoming familiar with that convinced you that that actually is real, that that's true? And I, I want to caveat this by saying, I, I know you've, I've heard you say this in other uh, interviews as well, that it isn't that you don't recognize that some single parents do amazing jobs with wonderful kids who end up doing well. But my take on it is it's as a a matter of just general averages and recommendations, your view is that the data, and correct me if I'm wrong, overwhelmingly suggests that having co-parenting with children, even in divorce, is extremely important. Yes. First of all, thank you for that caveat too, because I really, you know, having dated between marriages, uh, I met the woman I'm married to 29 years ago, and um, between marriages, I um, um, I dated almost all uh, single mothers, and they were among the hardest working people I know. Yeah, um, were devoted, uh, they were caring, and many of their children did grow up reasonably well. 
um, both financially and educationally. And so statistically speaking, one can understand that um, the the majority of children who are raised by single mothers can do well, but statistically that's compatible with the possibility that if you look at the boy crisis and boys who aren't doing well, what is happening with boys that aren't doing well? And there's a lot of variables, but the boy crisis resides uh, where dads do not reside more than any other single cause. And so why? Uh, and so uh, so let me I'll do two things on this. One is to say that there's besides dads, there's a number of things. There's what I would call four must do's if you want your children to um, do as well um, after a divorce as they would in an intact family. Hmm. Uh, the first must do is that the children do the closer the children have to equal amount, 50-50 amount of time with both father and mother, statistically, all socioeconomic variables controlled for, the better they tend to do on average. Mm-hmm. That's number one of the four must-dos. Number two is that the um, the parents live within about 20 minutes drive time from each other, so the children don't resent the parents whose home they're going to because they they have to give up their best friend's birthday party or not be able to attend soccer practice uh, type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, third is that the children are not able to detect, important word detect here, any bad mouthing from mother to father or father to mother. And when I say detect, I don't mean just words of bad mouthing but paying less attention to a child who's saying that they had a wonderful time at their mother's home or their father's home, Hmm. or just sort of like being a little bit passive aggressive and giving less attention and and so on. And just looking negatively at the child or over uh, or being overheard talking to a neighbor on the phone um, about the um, about negative things about the father or the mother. Um, And then the fourth thing that is crucial is that the, uh, the the newest research shows this, uh, that ch- uh, children who have parents that are attending couples communication counsel- counseling or relationship counseling um, consistently, not just for emergencies, um, those children uh, do better than children who don't have parents that are doing that. Uh, the distinction between consistently rather than emergencies is important because during emergencies, when you go to a counselor, oftentimes emergencies are time oriented. We have to make this decision quickly. Hmm. And then both parents tend to argue their point of view. And both people come, uh, both parents tend to come away with um, my part, my old partner bad, me good. Uh, whereas the the consistent counseling can allow time for both parents to see the other parent's best intent and to discover the, the, the huge thing that is missing in the culture that the Boy Crisis book is significantly about, which is the differences between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting. And, and, and how one can create checks and balance parenting. Um, and almost nobody understands, uh, why roughhousing leads to children being more empathetic. Um, uh, I certainly didn't understand that before I did the research for the boy crisis book and I couldn't find it in any parenting books or parenting magazines. And so, um, women can't hear what men don't say. So I don't blame mothers for not knowing this because men don't tell them and men can't hear what they're, what's not available in the culture, even if they are the rare man that reads the book on relationships or book on parenting. 
something uh, that's not there. And so I found it necessary to write the Boy Crisis book because uh, I was able to discover about seven very significant differences um, between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting that, that, that both parents really need to understand in order to be able to get to get to create win-win situations uh, for their children and not think that the other child, that the other parent is either uh, a mother who's overprotective or a father who's not being uh, conscious of the risks that he's uh, encouraging his son to take or is making his son or daughter cry uh, because they um, uh, because he was teasing them or um, or being uh, enforcing boundaries. You said this earlier that when you stopped speaking at or lecturing two men and started listening to them, that that seemed to be a formative time in your life. And I wanted to give some space for you to give your memories as to what you you've alluded to some, but what you be what you began to hear from men when they started opening up to you and in these groups. What do you remember? What still resonates that affected you pretty significantly? The single most important one was the degree to which men, when they were hurting inside by doing things that they felt that they should do, such as giving up a career, almost none of the men, until I shut my mouth and, and, and drew them out, understood or got in touch with what I would call the glint in their eye when they were younger. Hmm. Uh, that, you know, that desire to be, um, you know, I think I could be a famous writer. I think I could be, uh, I really love acting. I love being a musician. My heart just opens up um, when I play in the band or I sing in the chorus, or I'm, you know, I love being a, an elementary school teacher or a junior high school teacher. And almost, and then when they became fathers, knowing that none of those things were likely to make a predictable amount of money. And I was able to, you know, as I was forming these groups, um, my my father, I was, be, um, I was be, before I, got, I finished my doctorate and I was contemplating uh, writing a, a, a book on, on these issues. And my father got wind of the fact that I was, you know, in, in the mode for that. And he said, you know, Warren, um, I just want you to understand that you know, only about one in a hundred um, publishers uh, will find, uh, uh, sorry, authors will find a publisher. And if you can't find a publisher, you, you know, you'll never be able to find a wife. Well, by this time I had a wife, but somebody who's really saying is I'll never really be able to do what a husband should do, which is earn the type of income that you need to be able to be an equal or better than equal uh, supporter of the family um, and, you know, have children, et cetera. And so um, I, I was seeing that for myself, that message come to me um, already. Um, and at the same time that I was hearing this message come from so many other men. And then I sort of saw the twist and turn that we had done in this, because these the people who were earning more money than their partners, than, than, than a female, uh, was were almost always the fathers, not single men. Um, and in fact, you know, when I wrote a book called Why Men Earn More and What Women Can Do About It, you know, one of the discoveries was since the 1970s, never married women who have never had children have out-earned never married men who have mm-hmm. never had children. Um, so that the pay gap was largely 
when men got married and then they had children, they learned that they had to, that a part of being a father was to earn more and to be part of what I would call the father's catch 22. We learned to love our children by being away from the love of our children. And these were all the things I began to discover and piece together as I listened to the men rather than lectured the men that they had all the privilege and all the power. And we, at the same time as this was happening, I was lecturing to people about male privilege and male power. Um, And I started to see that, wait a minute, men do earn more money than women when they are fathers. But if they're never, if they have no plan to be a father or to be married, uh, that's a, that's actually the reverse of that. And today it's a hundred, never married women who have never had children earn 117% of what mm-hmm. never married men who have never had children earn. Um, but it's been close to that for years. Um, and so I started to make, put all these pieces together and realize that, um, that earning more money was not about male privilege. It was because it's it's not male privilege to feel obligated, which these men did, obligated to earn money that often their family spent while they died sooner, um, or that they went off to, go, to to drink because they hated doing what they did at work. And in addition to that, they didn't have the social permission to share with their wives uh, how painful doing something that was meaningless was, or, you know, taking orders from a boss that they didn't respect, um, and not, but not feeling the, the, um, that they had the bandwidth to quit or feeling that they would be, um, not, um, that if they lost their job, uh, their wife wouldn't respect them and their children wouldn't have as much, um, leverage to, um, uh, to go into and to, to be in a new home in a new neighborhood with, um, better school system than they had in the past. Is your takeaway from that revelation for you that men simply understand that in order to attract women, they need to shut up, bear it, like you just said, often take jobs and work hours that are almost unconscionable to them, almost intolerable to them. And it just took a forum in which they were asked how they're doing for them to honestly respond to that question. Why is it in your estimation that this is not better known or at least better respected by the culture in general? Because when, when if, if, first of all, your, your point that we learned very quickly um, in our life, especially as teenagers, that you know if we talked about our fears or we complained about something or we said we didn't like something that was, um, that, that women were attracted to alpha men um, and uh, and men who were who were strong. Now they they liked men who opened up and expressed their feelings if the men were strong first. So um, you know that Lois Lane um, had no interest in Clark Kent, um, but when when she discovered that Clark Kent was Superman, she prided herself on getting Superman to be able to express his feelings. Um, but she was only interested in getting somebody to express their feelings, which Clark Kent was already doing. Um, you know, when she found out that he was Superman first, then feeling second. And men get that without knowing that they get that, without being able to articulate that. You know, that yes, if you're, you know, the the, the strongest football player, uh, you can complain a little bit. Um, but if you until you prove yourself strong first. 
um, just focus on staying strong and risking spinal cord injuries and concussions uh, to, you know, to catch that football and to catch and to you know, make that touchdown. And so, you know, men, men learn so many ways that, you know, if they're playing that football, for example, um, uh, and they lose their position on the team, they notice the cheerleader doesn't cheer for the, for them and say, gee, you know, I noticed what a good listener you were and um, how you huddled really carefully. And you asked for extra time in the huddle from the referee because you you needed to process more people's feelings. Um, and so I really respected that so much about you. Um, but rather that the, you know, the cheerleader um, stopped cheering for him and cheered for his replaceable part. Hmm. Um, and he learned that he would be a replaceable part um, that that the that the female falling in love with the alpha men, the alpha man doesn't complain because complaining felt like whining, and whining felt like um, to many women uh, like a fingernail scratching on a chalkboard when it came from a man. Uh, and uh, they they would have empathy for the men. They would feel close to the men. Many women talk about how they love gay men because they open up and express their feelings, but they don't feel sexual attraction to those gay men, <laughs> even if yep. the men. Those gay men felt sexually attracted to them, um, or at least marital attraction. And so many men feel that if they're, they're tall and they're strong, yes, a woman will sleep with them. But when it comes to a long-term relationship, uh, they they want, um, uh, and particularly if they're considering having children, uh, they want a man that they, that feel, they feel can offer them what I would call three options. Uh, the option to work full-time, the option to be full-time with the children, or the option to do some combination of both. And so that means that in order to have that woman have that three options, he often has to focus on earning money to create those three options for her. And he says, in essence, well, I have three options too. Option one is to work full-time. Option two is to work full-time. And option three is to work full time or to work overtime if he's a working class man or to work in a job that earns more money if he's a, a, a white collar worker, a middle class man. Yeah. I want to read a few of your quotes that I came across in doing research for this conversation, many of which I found very thought provoking. And one of them, I think you have already alluded to, which is um, that the boy crisis resides where there are no fathers. This was a, a comment that you made a, a few minutes ago. In order to read a few quotes from the book that I also wanted to bring up, we will back up and I'll, I'll actually quote the statement that I was referring to, which is, quote, the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside, which I think you uh, spoke to a little bit earlier. Another one is, the discipline of postponing gratification is the single most important discipline your son needs. A third one is, quote, in one generation, young men have gone from 61% of college degree recipients to a projected 39%, young women from 39% to a projected 61%. The last one is, every day, 150 workers die from hazardous working conditions, and 92% are male. There's another quote I heard you give in a podcast interview, which I think relates to many of the themes that you've already discussed during this conversation. And, and this is the quote, quote, the reason we males exist is to be willing to die to protect women. The essence of masculinity is the preparation for disposability. In every war, men were told you will be a real man if you are willing to be disposable in that generation's war. 
you you speak about a subject in the beginning of the boy crisis that I have heard been discussed just anecdotally in bars and restaurants with friends that I, I wanted to bring up with you to get your thoughts on. And I'm going to quote a, a section from the book, and then I'd love to get your comments on it. And this is the quote, boys today have sperm counts less than half of what their grandfathers had at the same age. And the problem is getting worse. The average sperm count in the United States continues to drop 1.5% every year. In the best you can understand what I'm sure is a very complicated fact about that, what in the hell is going on there in your estimation? <laughs> yes, um, and I laugh but cry at the same time. So, <laughs> um, let me go, go through those quotes one at a time. Please. Uh, so the most important one is that the boy crisis resides where dads do not reside. So let's be specific, specific about that. Uh, when I was doing the research for the boy crisis, I found this time after time. I was on the board of now. I was giving that information in just you know five or six examples. Now um, the boy crisis has an appendix with more than 70 examples of the connections between dad deprivation and suicide. Um, dad deprivation is the single biggest predictor of a boy that will eventually commit suicide. Now, again, this does not mean that if a boy is dad deprived, that he he will commit suicide. So there's only a tiny, tiny percentage of people that commit suicide and a tiny, tiny percentage of even boys. Um, but the um, um, among those that do, dad deprivation is um, a is this is a, a very uh, potent cause uh, such a great correlation that we can really call it a cause at this point in time hmm. um to, number two um there are 69 or so other areas like this uh, uh boys with uh that are dad deprived are far more likely to be addicted to video games now here we're talking about very large numbers hmm. <laughs> not like suicide um, but the video games are science often addiction to video games. Video games up to about 12, 13 hours a week um, are actually quite healthy in many ways. They do a number of positive things if they, excuse me about that, um, especially if the video games are um, are educationally oriented. Um, but the um, but the video games at the addiction level, um, which is 15 hours a week or more approximately, um, that starts getting into, um, into significant problems. Uh, so 15 hours a week is the average that males are uh, playing video games. Five or six hours a week is the average that females are playing video games. So you can see that the average male, particularly dad-deprived males, tend to be much more likely to withdraw into video games. In the worst case scenario, those video games can become, um, the, the boy can be so addicted to the video games that he almost perceives his friends as the people who are the video game actors, no less the video game players who are playing with those actors. I had a, a boy named Carlos write to me um, uh, about a year and a half ago um, saying that he had read the Boy Crisis book and um, and it's saved him from doing the following, that that addiction level to video games was so great that he no longer saw himself as a human being. He saw himself as a player in those games. He had gotten into his, he had been raised by a single mom, 
only. Um, his mom was very anti-male. Uh, um, he went, he got into fierce arguments with her and became, um, moved on to, um, his, uh, living with his uh, grandmother and then aunts and all the same type of, uh, difficult uh, relationships. Um, he felt isolated from everybody and incompetent. Um, and he began to join, um, 8chan, which is a fascist ideology group and started, uh, that has, um, that has bred two of the uh, mass shooters, including, um, uh, Nicholas Cruz and, um, I think it's, um, Brenton Tarrant, who did the Christchurch shooting. And the, um, and he said he then became so identified with them that he drew up his own 52 mass, um, 52 page manifesto to conduct his own mass shooting. Hmm. Um, and that he read the boy crisis book and it identified, it made, he said it, it made him feel like I spied on his life, that I was a spy in his life if he didn't know better. Um, uh, but it led him to feeling understood and not alone. And to then seek help from a psychologist, um, then, and thank me for the, the book saving his life and the life of, as he put it, many, many others, um, because he, he was trying to make a huge impression so that he would get attention from people as a result of being a brilliant, uh, organizer of mass shootings, very much like Stephen Paddock did in uh, Las Vegas. And so, um, that was just the, that's just, I, I went down a, a, a rabbit hole there just on the issue of addiction and, and addiction to video games, um, at, at its worst. Um, and then, um, this, uh, the, the lack of dad involvement is also highly correlated, uh, with the, uh, with addiction to, to drugs, to death from overdose, um, to ad- addiction to pornography. Um, boys, uh, and, and particularly to postpone gratification. Postpone, postpone gratification is the single biggest predictor of success or failure in life. And boys, um, and dads, t- one of dad's contributions to children is they tend to do not just boundary setting with the kids, but boundary enforcement. Uh, so they're roughhousing with the kids and the kids are too rough and the dad will be likely to say, uh, dad and mom would say basically the same thing. You know, don't push your sister aside. Um, and you're put, you know, put your elbow in your sister's eye or, or, you know, be too aggressive with your brother. Uh, you can't win in roughhousing that way. And so mom and dad will pretty much set the same boundaries. Um, but the difference is when the child goes back and repeats the behavior that the parent just warned them not to do, Dad will, for example, tend to end the roughhousing there and say, okay, I warned you, that's the end, you had your warning. Whereas dad, moms would be more likely on average to repeat that warning again and a little bit more sternly. Um, but for kids who are um, sort of who are really into the, the roughhousing or the play or whatever, where they want to do what they want to do, be, knowing that they will be warned again not to do it is not enough to stop them from doing it. Knowing that they're going to lose what they really want, the roughhousing or the time to play with the father um, they, oh, and the bond with their father that comes from playing with their father. And that's a crucial point, the bond with their father that comes from playing with their father. Uh, if the boy or the girl child know that they're going to do that by not thinking of their brother or sister's needs in the in the roughhousing process and not postponing their gratification um, to um, to get what they really want, the roughhousing, as opposed to what they temporarily want, um, being aggressive to win at the roughhousing, 
Uh, that's what teaches that boundary enforcement is what teaches the kids that postponed gratification. And it also teaches them um, uh, empathy that my, my sister and brother have needs and feelings uh, that they, that have to be paid attention to. And am I just, am I paying attention to them because I'm a good person? Not really. I'm paying attention to them because I get what I want when I pay attention to them because I'm required to pay attention to my sister's and brother's needs as a result of my, um, my father requiring me to do so in order to get that rough housing from the person I'm bonded to my father as a result of the rough housing as a result of the playing. So all those things, you know, if you're, if you're a parent listening to this, take a look at the portions of the boy crisis book that really explain this in much greater depth, because this is just a superficial overview of this, but understanding that difference between boundary setting and boundary enforcement um, is one of the crucial reasons why uh, children do better in more than 70 different uh, metrics of uh, things that we all want from our children, more likely to be empathetic, loving, having social connections, friends, being more likely to complete their homework, being more likely to uh, have respect of the teachers at school, have respect of you, being able to to take a dream that they have, whether that dream is singing or, um, you know, or uh, or being a gymnast or um, being on an Olympic team and take that dream and make it happen. Uh, that's all requires discipline. And the discipline comes from not having a, um, n- n- having your parents tell you, yes, uh, you can tell me you want to be a, uh, an Olympic gymnast, but that requires forfeiting all of these things in life. If you really want to get there, we'll support you to do that. If you, if you do your end of the stick, you have the discipline to do that. But if you start wanting to go to parties and hang out and play video games and do things like that, and you tell us you want us to give you a tutor to be an Olympic uh, champion, uh, you can't have it both ways. Fascinating. I mean, Warren, you, I thought you, that was a brilliant statement right there. And I, I think shed light on so many of the reasons why dads are so crucial for the development of, of kids it seems to me that you are giving voice oddly in a rare moment for why dads are even important in the first place. And you just talked about boundary enforcement and, you know, kind of embodying the importance of delayed gratification. I certainly identify that from my own father. What, what else? Obviously I I think you're right that to really go deep on this, you probably need to read the book, but are there any other things that you think are worth articulating about you know what what it is specifically that dads provide to their children and maybe even more specifically to their sons that are so crucial in making the kind of kids we want in our civilization i'd love to give you some time to speak to that if anything else comes to mind too yes absolutely um and then and let me also make one caveat thing around single mothers here too um if you're a single mom, I want you to, I'd like you to hear this as part of what I'm encouraging men to do is to recognize that the burden needs to be of, of raising children as well as the joy of raising children, as well as the love of raising children. But the burden part should not be and need not be on you. you every woman, as I said before, is feels uh, who's single, almost every woman who's single feels overwhelmed and doesn't feel like she's doing anything as well as she wants to do it. And, uh, and so 
I want you to be to see this as a woman's issue that we need to say, dads, take responsibility equal with me. It's good for me. It's good for you. It's good for the children. And it's good for the nation. Hmm. Um, and so this is um, the one of the very few win, 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 win uh, situations that, that I can think of. Treat this as a woman's issue. Take leadership on this as a woman's issue. It is a woman's issue. Uh, it's also a men's issue. It's also a children's issue. Um, but the most important thing is because I know you love your children. You're devoted to them. Um, you're, you're, you're spending over backwards, working hard for them. Uh, you need to, um, you deserve having those responsibilities shared, even if, if it's with a man that you've divorced. And you don't care for um, it's the whoever that biological father is is so important. Um, we have my for, my my wife has from a former marriage an adopted ch- child, and that adopted daughter um, was sitting with us at dinner when I was meeting with a rancher from New Zealand who had come over um, after I did a book tour in New Zealand, and um, he was. Uh, I asked him, you know, tell me about a day on the ranch in New Zealand. And he said, well, um, I'll share a story with you. And he said, you know, I uh, I just came a- away from an experience where the, uh, the, we had 12 ducklings that were born and the mom and dad were killed. And the chicken in the barn where the ducklings were, um, a chicken, a female chicken took over the raising of the ducklings. And it was so incredible mm-hmm. to see the nurturing and the caring and the output of energy that this mother chicken had for the ducklings. Uh, but and one day, uh, the ducklings were old enough to waddle out of the barn, and they waddled down the um, the the um, uh, the hill in our in our property, and they jumped into our lake, and the mother chicken went berserk, um, and, uh, and you know, like the chicken couldn't swim, she felt felt that you know the ducks were going to drown, ducklings were going to drown, and she just was you know so um, went beside of herself. And uh, the Liz's adopted daughter from a former marriage, now a, a girl I call my daughter and a woman, uh, said she was eight years old at the time. She interrupted and she said, that's the way I feel. Every day I feel like a duck hmm. raised by a chicken. Hmm. And it's sort of when it's wonderful to have a stepfather and it's and to have a stepfather in the child's life. And if you need to marry a different man, I understand. But the what my adopted daughter, what now adopted daughter, says uh, said is that when a when a child looks in the mirror and they see in that mirror, they don't see their stepfather um, plus them. They see their biological dad plus their biological mom in that step mirror. The eyes, the hairs, the you know the 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 body language, um, the nuances. Um, and if either if they hear that either one of them is being criticized as being narcissistic or irresponsible or a liar, uh, that's also doing damage to that half of themselves uh, that hasn't earned that criticism yet, but fears that they might um, um, be that way underneath. And they can't talk to their mom about it and they can't talk to their dad about it because that will only exacerbate the insecurity that they're already feeling by the separation of their mother or father or the absence of knowledge of who their dad is. 
And so um, the biological father's involvement, it's crucial for you to know that and understand that, because if you do know and understand it, almost every man will will respond positively when he's told he is needed. But you have to know, mom, why he is needed, how he is needed, and be able to explain that specifically and convincingly to him. And then he will oftentimes turn around and become um, somebody who is responsive um, to stepping up to it. Every generation had its war. And in every generation's war, we said to men, uh, men, you are needed to um, be willing to kill and be killed in this war. And I can only tell you that it's a lot easier for men to hear the message, we'd like you to love and be loved rather than kill and be killed. Um, um, it's a lot. <laughs> and so if you, if you explain it, but men need to know that they're valued and exactly that you know why and how they're valued, that when they let a child go to the playground and he's seven or eight and he gets into a fight on the playground, that you're not accused of letting that child be on the playground by him, her himself, but you trust that father enough to talk about what happened on that playground that led there to be a fight that you can avoid in the future and to let let the experience of the fight uh, be the the uh, the traumatic temporarily traumatic experience that can be processed so that your children can uh, uh, not be overprotected until they go out in the world suddenly knowing not how to protect themselves yeah that's a great statement warren i know we're getting closer to the end of the conversation and there i think there are a few subjects i'd love to maybe close with that are related to one another. And I know we talked about very briefly the uh, data about sperm count. And I've heard you speak about the, you know, modern feminization of America and uh, of our culture in general. And I'd love to maybe ask you again about what your thoughts are about what, what is causing that decline in sperm count in general in in men, and also what you think a healthy society looks like in relation to the role of men in general and the esteem that men are given. I'd love to give that to you and get your thoughts on both of those. Yes, the sperm count thing is partially when when somebody does not have a sense of purpose and they don't have a sense of um, the boundary enforcement that requires them to be disciplined, uh, that does not um, generate as much t- much testosterone um, mm. as when you you know when you see it, you have a goal and you know you need to do it. You know your parents will be proud, teachers will be proud. You'll attract girlfriends by doing it. You start doing the discipline uh, that is sometimes you know associated with the military to mm. to get those things going. And when that happens, your testosterone level tends to go up. Um, and but and there's other things that are not related to that issue. Um, there's um, th- uh, when plastics are dumped into rivers and um, lakes, uh, the plastics leach phthalates. Phthalates mimic estrogen um, to such a degree that alligators in many um, lakes um, where there are alligators um, are now the male alligators. Are um, are having their their testicles are shriveling up uh, because the phthalates mimic estrogen. Small mouth sea bass um, are are that are males are producing eggs rather than sperm. 
um, in, in, in lakes and rivers um, that have been measured to have um, um, plastics dumped in them and the, the, the lates that mimic estrogen that produce um, uh, even, turn even males um, uh, uh, even male sperm into eggs. And that's how powerful. So when you put the two of those things together, uh, the social things and the, um, and the ecological and the, um, environmental, uh, impact, um, you get some explanation of why, um, sperm count has decreased by 60% over the, since, um, I think it's 1980. I'd love to close with this. I mean, first, I just want to say how important I think your your book your book and your work is, and how much I appreciate you giving me the time to to have this conversation with you and and share this with the general public, as I know you've done with other interviewers and and podcasters. And, and maybe we can close in having a conversation about the future and what you think. You know, if the ideas that you've kind of dedicated your life to are agreed upon by the greater culture, what the country might look like in five or 10 years, how we might change in the way that we prioritize men and we the way we think about men and women. I'd love to lob that to you and give you a, a maybe a closing statement on what you think that you know, a healthy society, a wise society might look like in relation to everything we've we've talked about today. Yes. Well, good. First of all, psychologically, understanding that men are not the oppressors that that we're all that that they that many 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 men have defined power as feeling obligated to earn money that someone else spends while they die sooner and shut their mouth about it and not even be in touch with it themselves just doing rotely what they were doing just like women did for many years my grandparents did not talk about rights and um, women's rights or men's rights. They talked about their obligations, their responsibilities. Um, and both sexes have done that. It's only been in the last half century where we said to women, we focused on women's and women's rights, but not recognizing that men often gave up their heart, their lives, their passions, their feelings, and their and discounted their fears. Um, to be um, to be men, um, and that's served the 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 country and the world well. Uh, we would be being ruled by Nazis if it wasn't for that willingness to to be that way. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we have to acknowledge that that's not male privilege; that's male sacrifice. Um, or men earning more money is not male privilege. That came from male willingness to sacrifice. Because the more fulfilling an occupation is the less it pays it doesn't pay more hmm. um and so the so we have to take a different fundamental attitude number two legislatively uh the closest positive legislation that has happened i feel very good about the fact that the the boy crisis was read by a fellow named chris sprouls who was speaker of the house in florida um, and he um, used it to, with his wife to raise three sons for a few years, saw that it was really helping both of them, um, passed it on to the heads, the Republican and Democratic heads of the House in Florida a, f- a few years ago. They drew up two pieces of legislation, actually three pieces of legislation. One was to have um, $70 million devoted to helping fathers and mothers understand the importance of fathers. Number two was to have equal shared parenting. 
um, as um, as a starter. Obviously, we don't want equal shared parenting for pedophiles or abusers, um, but we want equal shared parenting for 99% of parents. Number three, uh, that if a mother and father um, are not married, but they have a, uh, they create a child together, that they both have equal rights, that, that not just be assumed that the mother should have more rights than the, than the father. We don't need a world where women have the right to children and men have to fight for children. We want the courts not to absorb the hundred thousand or hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of the of the family's money uh, with the man fighting in court for the children. Uh, that's not the way to use um, the the family family's money. Um, so some of those are some of the um, uh, we need to have schools in which there are male teachers that are not just teachers like I am. Um, I'm more of a nurturer, connector personality. We need teachers. That, uh, we need teachers that are uh, also more traditional males and um, and males like I am, both teaching together. So any given boy can have a role model. If he doesn't have that role model of a, the type of man that he's prone to be, um, he has role models to choose from, not just one role model that he may not identify with. We need to make sure that we, the schools have more vocational education. Uh, vocational education is crucial to giving boys a sense of purpose when they're not academic in their orientation. We need to have more recess restored because both boys and girls do better on tests. The C, this is the Center for Disease Control's findings uh, that the boys and girls both do better on tests for each moment they spend uh, physically being active than, the, than for each additional moment they spend uh, stu studying once a certain ground uh, level of studying um, happens. Hmm. So those are just a few other things. Also, you know, just really take a look at the portions of the book uh, that, that talk about how to involve stepfathers, how to involve grandfathers, how to involve um, uh, coaches in school, how to get the, your kids involved with the liberal arts of sports, pick up team sports, team sports, and and individual sports like um, gymnastics or uh, tennis. Um, all of these things are way, um, get your son involved in Cub Scouts, um, see, uh, study, look at the stuff that I have on the value of Boy Scouts, boys clubs, and so on. There's there are ways to involve, um, get to get to give your your boy or your son good male role models. Um, the damage has been with divorce and single mothers greater to our sons than our daughters, because at least with our daughters um, being raised by single mothers, they have the daughters have two things: they have a female role model, and they have much greater social permission to express their feelings, and they can say to mom, "You know, mom, I'm getting this blood here. What is that about? I'm really upset." Um, that type of thing. Uh, the boy doesn't feel nearly as comfortable saying, you know, I'm masturbating every night in bed. Uh, tell me what that's about, mom. Uh, <laughs> Fair enough. Warren, I, I said this earlier and I'll say it again. I, I think your book is one of the most important um, pieces of work that's out there. And I've certainly learned a lot from it. And it, it's been an honor to be able to research your book and just to be able to spend time with you and have this conversation. I just want to say thank you so much again for your efforts and for your time today. It was um uh, a real privilege. Thank you very much. May I just say one other thing? People often Please. ask where, where they can get it. If if you know the boy crisis is on sale on Amazon, but if you can support your local bookstore, it would be wonderful um, to to do that. Well said. Thank you, Warren. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. 
If you're finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show via the links below on Venmo, PayPal, or Patreon. Your support helps to make these conversations possible. Thank you.